Isaiah chapter 40 from verse 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Can we read it just one more time? Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let us pray. Forbid it, Lord, that any man should boast at this time. Forbid it, Lord, that we are taken by eloquence or skill. Forbid it that we are excited by man. But grant, O oh God, that our eyes may be fixed upon Christ and upon his glories. And this morning, as we look into your word, we ask that what we do not have, you would give us. We ask that what we are not, you would make us. We ask that where we are not presently, you will take us. And what we do not know, by your spirit, you will teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. I'll begin this morning by introducing us to a man, or reintroducing us to that man, who is one of, in my own estimations, the most fascinating characters in church history, and also one of my theological heroes. And that man is a man by the name John Owen. John Owen lived from 1616 to 1683 and died at the age of 67. He was an Englishman. And the period in which he lived is now known as the Puritan era. Now, you may have heard the name John Owen before, or you may not have heard the name before. But if you've heard of John Owen before, there are certain things that usually stand out when people speak about Owen. One of the things they say is that the books of John Owen are big. If you've ever been to the church office just by this side, you would see 16 volumes of a book that has 
a, a brown color and a green color, gray and green, 16 volumes. And on the shelf above that, you see a book that has a red color, seven volumes on the book of Hebrews. In his lifetime, it is estimated that John wrote eight million words. In fact, many of his books are yet to be translated from Latin to English and printed for the public. So you may have heard this before, John Owen has big books. You may have also heard that John Owen is a difficult person to read. That John Owen is not for boys. So if you want to get introduced to Puritan works, don't read Owen, read Watson, or read Boston, or read any other person except Owen. You may have also heard of his thorough method. One historian said that when John Owen begins to treat a topic, he exhausts it completely. That when he's done addressing a topic, there's nothing more to be said. He was that thorough as a scholar. But what we don't hear often about the life of Owen, or about Owen, is that John Owen was a great sufferer. John Owen was a man who suffered greatly. At 27, he married a woman by the name of Mary, Mary Rook. And together they had 11 children. Out of the 11 children, 10 died in infancy. And the remaining child, a girl, got married, had issues with her marriage, came back to her father's house, and died of tuberculosis. He buried his wife as well. And so he buried 12 family members. To put this in perspective for us, at a period in his life of 10 years, John Owen had buried three sons, three daughters rather, and four sons, which means every 15 months he was burying a child. Some of us were at a burial yesterday of a six-year-old girl. Just imagine 10 of your own children like that. And it was in that period that he wrote some of his best-known works. This is an encouragement to come for the African Pastors Conference because you will see them. One of the works he wrote in that period of deep suffering was the mortification of sin. You hear it for many Christians that the mortification of sin helped me greatly in my work with the Lord, but that was written by a man who was burying his children as he was writing. He also wrote another work, Communion with God, which is an excellent book if you want to start to understand what it looks like to have communion with a God who is three persons in one. And of course, the famous book he wrote, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, in this period of difficulty. And yesterday, while we were mourning, I asked myself, how did he do it? How did he pastor churches, became vice chancellor of Oxford, was very involved in the government. One time, he was taken to war to be the chaplain of the, the army of England. How, how did he do this? How did he manage to do this? Well, let's go further into the life of a man called Paul. How is it that Paul did it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he begins to recount his life. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Go further back in the history of the church. How did David do it? A young boy who was just a shepherd, he went to give his brothers food and his life changed from then on. And his king, his boss, was constantly seeking his life. In fact, at one time, David had to take his mother and father to the king of Moab. And he dropped them there and said, please just take care of my mother and father because David was a fugitive. And even when David settled down, tragedy struck his family. A daughter disgraced, a son killed, another son usurped in his throne, who eventually died as well. So how did he do it? That's a question I want us to ask this morning as we come before this text of scripture. How is it that the saints who have gone before us, how is it that they kept on keeping on? How is it that they somehow, in the midst of serious difficulty and strain and pain and suffering and just hardship, how is it that they kept on carrying on the gospel and living faithfully for God? And how can we keep on keeping on in the midst of our own trials and challenges and disappointment and sorrow and difficulty? It is important for us to ask this question and to get an answer because a time comes in the life of every man or woman when they are done. A time comes when we are tired. A time comes when we are empty and we feel like we don't have what it takes to just rise up from the bed and go on again. Which is what the prophet is saying in verse 30. He says, even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And he says, even the best of us, who are meant to be the strongest, he started by talking about youth. They're in their prime. They have all of the energy and all of the everything. He says, even then, a time comes when weariness, they will faint. And even young men, and the young men here, is more like choice men. The men who are selected for a task. Perhaps you are good in an area and you are given that task to do. And Isaiah says at some point, everybody will be done. Everybody will be tired. Everybody will be empty. You see, human strength will fail us at some point. Every kind of human strength we know at some point will fail us and not be able to carry us in those moments when we are weary. Consider our physical strength. Some of you already know this, you're growing old. And the things you could carry five years ago, you can no longer carry. Your body, our bodies are going through a process of wear and tear. Some can remember when you were in school, you could do TD before four days, no sleep. But now try it for two days as if they beat you from somewhere. In fact, the almighty Samson, one time in the book of Judges chapter 15, killed 1,000 men. And the next thing he said, he looked up to God and said, ah, will I die because of thirst? Because our physical strength will give way. Consider our mental strength. Some of us boast in how much we can remember, how much we can read, how much we can assimilate, how many things we do at a particular time. Oh, a time comes when a man cannot even remember his wife, cannot remember his daughter, 
Consider our emotional strength. I heard this a lot during the election that by myself, eh, nothing they move me, but this one pay me. That no, Nigeria does not move me, I'm not surprised, but this one pained me. And a point will come when you'll be depressed. When sometimes, even in a difficult marriage or in a difficult situation, you've been saying, God has been helping me, but a time comes you will say, ah, no, I can't take it anymore. No, I cannot. That's usually when people burst out in anger, when their emotional strength has failed. What about our spiritual strength? Even devout, even devout Christians backslide. Papa, they backslide. Mama, they backslide. Someone who is spiritually buoyant and on fire for the Lord in one moment of time can, in the very next moment, become lukewarm. A point comes when human strength is just not enough. And some of us know this, don't we? We've experienced sickness in our lives. When the things we thought we could do, we could no longer do. We've experienced the slow aging of our bodies. We've experienced emotional feelings. We've experienced disappointment, haven't we? You know, yesterday we got into a new quarter of the year. And just for a moment, think about all that has happened in the past quarter. January 1st, 2023, came with so much hope for a lot of us. Oh, I could not read my Bible last year. This year, I am going to read my Bible. And I got a Bible reading plan. Oh, I did not pray much last year. This year, I'm going to pray. And I got a praying roster and a praying schedule. I didn't do so much in my giving. Now I'm going to make improvement by the grace of God, by the help of God. I'm going to work on my marriage, work on my career, be a better parent to my children, be a better child to my parents, be better at school, be better at work. No more late, go, I won't go late to work anymore. But how far? As we get into the second quarter of the year, we can look back and say, ah, I failed in so many areas. And some of us can frankly say this morning, I am just tired. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read the words of people who are tired. These people are the exiles who had been taken away from their home in Judah. Isaiah, the son of Amos, was a prophet whose ministry spanned about 50 years and across four kings. You can remember, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord say at Isaiah. And his ministry spanned from Uzziah to Jotham to Ahaz to Hezekiah a very prominent prophet in Judah. And in chapters 41, chapters 1 to 39, the prophet is trying to warn the people of God because idolatry has stepped in and they were not listening. They had forsaken the worship of God and they were not listening. So Isaiah kept warning them, kept declaring woes from chapter 1 to 39. Now in chapter 40, the scene is a bit different. Isaiah is now speaking to a people who are in the future. At this point in time, the assumption is that captivity had happened. That the kingdom of Babylon had come and had taken away Israel, Judah to be specific. In chapters 1 to 39, the main threat at that time was the nation of Assyria. And those of us who are familiar with this history know that in Isaiah chapter 37, something happened to Assyria. 185,000 of their soldiers were struck by the Lord. Babylon came into power. 
Hezekiah made the mistake because then Babylon was not as prominent as it would later be to invite the Babylonian envoys to see all, all of the glories he had in Judah. And when Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon, the first thing he did, or one of the first things he did in his first year of his rule was to come to Judah. And then Judah had a king named Joachim. And Joachim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar entered into Judah, crushed the rebellion, and took the first set of exiles. This is where the man Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were taken. Some years later, Nebuchadnezzar still came back. He captured Jerusalem, and this is where the second batch of exiles were taken. Remember the prophet Ezekiel. But for a third time, Nebuchadnezzar came back. And when he came back, he burnt down Jerusalem. He burnt down the temple. That was the end of that temple era. He burnt the temple down, burnt the walls, and brought down the gates. And when these exiles were thinking about these things that had happened to them, they say in verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. So these were people who were not just tired physically, they were tired spiritually, they were tired emotionally. They had gotten to a point where they, they could say, we know they do again. We, we are tired of this thing. We see the same thing expressed in the 137th Psalm where they say, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lives. And there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So these were the same exiles. And they had come to the point where they had no home. They had no temple. In Babylon, there were no priests. So how could they have worshipped God properly according to the law of Moses? They couldn't. And they said, but we thought we are God's covenant people. And this led them to real despair. And they make two statements in verse 27. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord. And what they mean by this is that God cannot see us. God is not even aware of what is happening to us. Our ways, what we are going through, is hidden from God. We don't know how that hiding happened. But God cannot see at this very point in time. God cannot see our dejection. God cannot see our tears. God cannot see our sorrows. Have we ever felt this way? When we pray for something... And it is not a luxury we are praying for. You are not praying for a second car or a second house. You are praying for something that is absolutely vital and important. Your body is going through a difficult time and you are praying, God heal me of this sickness. And it's as if the moment you start praying, the sickness doubles. The moment you start praying, the doctor tells you that, ah, this is far worse than we thought. And you pray and pray and unanswered prayers. And then you feel, surely God cannot see me. My way is hidden from God. Sometimes tragedy also strikes us. I had a friend some years back, Millian, 
who lost about four family members in a year. And we, we, we lost, we, we, we did not know how to, how do, we, how do we speak to Milian as her friends? How? Okay, we organized a prayer meeting then. Our theology was not as straight as it is now. And we prayed and prayed. But we didn't know what to respond. We didn't know how to respond. And this is what these guys are facing. We are homeless exiles. We have no property here. We have no hope. God is not seeing us. But they make a second statement and say, my right is disregarded by my God. And this reminds us of Luke chapter 18, doesn't it? Of the woman and the unjust judge. That God does not even care what I am going through. God does not care that I am earning what I do not deserve. That perhaps I am innocent. And this thing that is happen happening to me is unjust. And God does not regard my right. God sees me and does not regard it. You know how they thought? They said, look at these Gentiles. They are mocking us. Where is our God? I thought we were told that we serve the living God. Look at them, how they laugh at us. Where is our God? Look at them, how they just look at us in disdain. Where is our God? I thought God said he was going to give us a land. I thought we were his people. And there was a land flowing with milk and honey for us. Where is our God? That's the despair. At the heart of everything going on in this text of scripture is this idea that God does not love us anymore. That's how this, this was the point these people got to. That surely, if all of these things are happening, God does not love us anymore. The reformer John Knox, in one of his catechisms, asked this question. He said, by what means did Satan first draw mankind from obedience to God? And the answer he gave is this. The scripture teaches us that by pouring into their hearts that poison, that God did not love them. And I think this is what the devil wants us to feel. When we go through our difficulties and our trials, that God does not love us. How can God say he loves us and still looks at us while we go through this difficulty? And Isaiah, God speaks to these people and tells them there are two things you must take into heart. When despair creeps in, and God speaks to us as well. And the first thing he says that the solution to our despair is that we must address our theology. The first solution to our despair is that we must address our theology. Whenever despair sets in, remember God. And there are four specific things that the Lord wants us to remember about him, which is in verse 28. In verse 28, he starts by saying, have you not known, have you not heard? In other words, this is not new information. If you are part of the covenant community of God, you are part of the covenant people, this must have come into your head at some point. And the prophet is reminding them, have you not known what? Number one, that God is always the same. That's the first line, that the Lord is the everlasting God. Now, sometimes our problems come from the fact that we think of God as we think of man in relation to time. God is eternal, everlasting, God does not change in respect to time. God does not learn anything new between 11 o'clock and 11.01. In fact, this is how one theologian puts it. He says, God is equally present to all points of time at once. So whereas we are here on the 2nd of April, God is in the 1st of April. God is in the 28th of April. 
God is in the 31st of December, 2023. God is at the back, in the present. God is, God and time are different. God is eternal outside of time. We are the ones with our own deadlines. We are the ones who think, by this age, I should have accomplished this. At this point in my life, I should have accomplished this. This week, I saw a friend on Instagram when in secondary school together, and she bought her first house, and she's in the U.S. And I remember one of my friends who used to be obsessed with this girl. And a few years after she left the country, this is, he kept asking me, like, oh boy, what's up? Because he also was being pressured by the fact that, oh, she's going ahead of me. And then I cannot do it. I cannot speak to her anymore because she's way ahead of me. And look at my age, look at her age. And then we are the ones who have our own deadlines. By this time, I should be married. I should have a child. I should have three children. I should have a house. And then when things don't happen that way, and then when we go through these moments of doubt, we begin to say, surely God does not care. Well, friends, God is more than aware because he's at every point in time. He's in your past. He's in your present. He's in your future. God is even at the point where you die in the future that you don't know of. God is everlasting. That's the first thing we must address in our theology. The second thing is that God is always right here. And that's the second line, the creator of the ends of the earth. When we talk about God's creation of everything, now as I talked about it this way, of the ends of the earth, which means if there's a point where the earth has a starting, a starting point, you will start from that starting point, cross every place to the ending point, and God created everything. Since God created everything everywhere, God touched everything. If you say God created the trees here, it means God touched it. God is present everywhere because he's creator. It is on the basis of this fact that God is creator that we can speak of the omnipresence of God. God has touched every single thing and every single place. There is no place upon this earth since God created everything where God is not. Every inch is known to God including the cemetery, including the hospital, including the bedroom, everywhere. You see, no matter what we go through in our lives, life cannot take us out of God's presence. It was David who said, even if I go to Sheol, where can I hide from your presence? God is always right here. When we feel alone and broken by life, God is there. The third thing we must correct in our theology is to remember that God is always at work. He says he does not faint or grow weary. I have a friend, yeah, whose mom has a very wealthy uncle. It is suspected that he's one of the richest men in southern Kaduna. And so anytime this man goes to the village, people, they would, they would just, it's as if they just hear that Oga has come. You see Q in front of the family compound. But something happened two years ago, and the man was involved in a fatal accident. He almost died. And they treated him in Abuja, and then eventually took him to London to give him proper treatment. Even good people grow weary. They grow faint. At a time comes when the person who gives can no longer give. The person who is giving 5,000 every time you need help, a time comes where he will look at his own pocket and say, ah, sorry, I don't have. Not God. A point never comes where God grows sick and is tired 
and then you come and you knock upon the, the, the door of the Lord and the Lord says, sorry, you'll come back later. I'm recuperating. A time never comes where God has exhausted his resources, whether his mental resources, if we can speak of it that way, whether his emotional resources, whether his physical resources, whether his spiritual resources. That does not happen with God. A time never comes when God is overwhelmed. God needs to eat. Sorry, I'm tired. Let me just grab lunch, and then I'll come and attend to you in the office. That's not God. God never faints or grows weary. God is not disregarding us in our tough times. God is not tired. Sometimes you feel like, oh, surely God will be tired of my problem. God is never tired. And the fourth thing we must address in our theology is that God is always wise. He says his understanding is unsearchable. The hymn we sang before the sermon says, judge not the Lord by feeble strength, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, that hymn will make more sense when we understand the story of the man who wrote it. The man was named William Cowper. William Cowper went through difficulty in life. He went through so much pain in life. He was a man who knew depression. And his issues in life got to the point where he was admitted into a psychiatric hospital, an asylum. That's how the thing has entered his brain. And I was in the asylum. One of the doctors took time to introduce him to God's word and preach the gospel to him, Cowper. And it was then that he came to know the Lord. Later, he was discharged out of the asylum and he met a man by the name of John Newton. And John Newton became his best friend, a man ravaged by tragedy. And Newton encouraged Cowper and said, why don't you put these things Write them down. Write them down. And together, John Newton and William Cowper produced a hymn book in England then called the Only Hymns. That's where Amazing Grace was written. That's where a hymn like Glorious Things of Thee are spoken. That's where it's written. And so the man could write autobiographically. That no, don't judge the Lord by feeble sense. You know the problem? We don't have all of the details. And so we keep saying, you know, sometimes we think and say, what if God had done this for me at this point in time? Why is it that God did not do this one for me? Why is it that, have you heard that thing before? If I had gotten married at this age, this would not have happened to me. If I had gotten serious with school, this would not have happened to me. If I have done this, uh, no, 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 no. A woman by the name of Fanny Crosby, at six weeks old, she had an eye issue and the doctors wrongly applied the treatment to her eyes. And she became blind for life. But she could write, as a Christian, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Surely you can ask for your sight, can't you? No, 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 no. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercies, who through life has been my guide? And one time they asked her, surely you'd want to see? No. God does all things well. And his understanding is unsearchable. The reason why we fret sometimes, we don't have the ability to peep into the mind of God. And even if we peeped into the mind of God, we can't understand it. God is wise. We cannot figure God out by our brains. By putting pen to paper and analyzing everything. 
which is what some people have been doing with Nigeria. You can't figure out what God has in mind for the country. We submit to him by faith. The prophet wants us to have this at the back of our mind in addressing our theology that God is not man. When we are going through the difficulty that often comes to us in life, don't forget, God is not man. Which is what we see in verse 30. The young men shall fall exhausted. Those of us who watch sports, you hear of the goats, the greatest of all time. Well, the goat of today was not the goat of 10 years ago. There was a different goat. And 50 years ago, a goat existed. And one goat died last year. When I say goat, greatest of all times. And the current goats, a time will come when another goat will, because you see, Messi cannot play for 10 more years. Neither can Ronaldo. Tiger Woods is done. Usain Bolt is done. They are the best at what they do. Ah, but they are gone. They are tired. Even Jagaban is tired. <laughs> God is no man. God is not a man. Men will get tired. No, God is not a man. And we must correct that in our theology. That God is not a man. And because God is not a man, he can give power, in verse 29, to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Because God is not a man. And because God has this endless reservoir of strength and power, he can give it to those of his children who are in need of it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul said, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You see, God has always been dealing with the weakness of man. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul was thinking about the weakness that comes to man as a result of sin. That we are so spiritually weak and unable that we cannot do anything towards God. This is actually the message of Easter. That at the cross, we are reminded of our powerlessness. That yes, God exists, but okay, reach out to God. We cannot. We do not have the power to deliver ourselves. And what did God do while we were weak in our sins? He sent his son to die for us. You know, you may be here this morning, and you think you've got it all together. It's only a matter of time. You may be here this morning, and your boast is in something you have, or something you've done before, or some connections, or certain things that have been put in place, and your hope and trust is not in Christ. Oh, your woman most weak, and your weakness will be exposed eventually. God comes while we're weak sinners and sent his son to die for us. And now that we are in him, as we walk through life, God continues to meet our need for strength continually. We must get our theology right. But we must also correct our practice. We must address our practice, which is what the, the prophet says in verse 31. He says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. He answers the question, how then do we go on in the most difficult seasons of life? He says we should wait. How does God strengthen us? Waiting. How does God get us back up on our feet? Waiting. How do we wake up in the morning and try again? And try again and again and again and again. Waiting. What does it mean to wait? To wait does not mean we are sitting down doing nothing. To wait has this idea of eagerly longing for God to show up. 
There's an eager longing and expectation for God to show up. Now, I don't know how many of you love movies. Sometimes in a movie, there's somebody who we have come to know as the actor, and there's somebody who is the boss, which is really the protagonist and the antagonist. So perhaps this actor has a wife, and they are trying to beat the wife or cheat the wife out of something. When we are watching the movie, what we are doing is what? We are on the edge of our seats, and we are saying, surely he will show up. He will show up, especially if you watch Indian movies. He's coming. He's coming. There's no way he won't come. So maybe they beat, 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 and you're like, ah, this guy should come now. He's almost dying. And then at the last minute, you just see one bike or keke or something. And you say, yes, in your heart. He has shown up. When we wait for God, we are on the edge of our seats expecting God to show up in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our challenges. We are looking to God and saying, surely you would fulfill your promises to us. All of your promises. That's what it means to wait. And we do this by meditating upon those promises as given in God's word. We are not lazy. We do this by spending time with him regularly in prayer. That's how we wait. And say, Lord, I know things are not going as they ought to. Oh, but I trust in you. I hope in you. I trust that you would show up. You know, we like quick fixes by nature. It got to a point where I understood that the reason why some people spend so much time on social media is not really because they are lazy. Sometimes it's because they are trying to fix their problem. So the way to fix a problem of pain is to numb yourself by watching Netflix. Some of us, we numb ourselves by walking. So you are walking, walking, walking. Whether there's something wrong with this man or this woman. And so work becomes an outlet for dealing with those disappointments. For some, it's sex. For some, it's drugs and alcohol and booze. We are always trying to find a way, right? Let's try to deal with this feeling I'm having inside. Let me try to deal with this pressure that I am having inside. And God says, if you are my child, the way to strength, the way to keep on keeping on is by waiting upon me. We rely too much on people. When something happens, oh, let me call this person. Perhaps he will know somebody that will know somebody that will know somebody. Or you call somebody and say, I know you don't know anybody, but for adventure you know somebody who knows somebody. Help me. Whereas God says, no, we must wait. And what happens when we wait? Ah, renewal of strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. It is like a revival of strength. Those who wait upon the Lord will experience something like an exchange of weakness for strength. Those who wait upon the Lord will find out that when their human strength and capabilities fail them, there's a divine strength that comes from behind and propels us forward. There's a divine enablement that comes from God himself by his spirit that pushes us forward and says, go and try again. Go out one more time. When we wait upon the Lord, we are enabled to do the impossible, really. So how did John Owen do it? He did it because God was strengthening him. How did Paul do it? He did it because God was pushing him forward. How did David and all of the saints who have gone before, how did they go through those difficult times that seemed as though they would swallow them? Because they were receiving renewed strength 
from the Lord. And he gives three pictures. When there is crisis, we can soar above like the ego. When there are challenges, we can run. And even when we, when we don't have strength to do the day-to-day -day things, to wash the plates and clean the house and take the children to school and iron and... <laughs> God will give us strength to walk and not faint. This week is an opportunity for us to wait afresh. As we think about all that has gone, January, February, March, and we look forward to April, May, and June, well, God can give us strength. But we must abandon our quick fixing and learn to wait upon him. Father, we ask that you take these words we have heard, you plant it deep in our hearts, and really where we need strength, you strengthen us. You strengthen our weary hearts. In Jesus' name.